0: And then he's really going to just open it up for questions. In order to maintain the quality of the questions, please DM me your questions. I'll be doing the vetting of folks requesting to come up. And after vetting questions and the folks, we'll let you up to ask questions. Alex, are you having issues joining? I guess while we figure out why Alex is not on stage, P, do you want to talk about Bitcoin 2022?
1: Yes, I do. Thank you so much for asking. If you do not already have tickets for Bitcoin 2022, you should seriously consider your life, all the choices you've made, and whether or not you should be shaming your family so significantly. All joking aside, it's going to be absolutely incredible. It is the largest indoor space that I have ever seen. And there's also a huge part of the conference that's happening. Outside, there's going to be five different stages on the GA days, the Nakamoto stage, the Genesis stage. There's going to be a whole stage on mining, an entire stage on open source which Matt and I are collaborating on. And there's also going to be an institutional finance stage. There's going to be an industry day. It's going to be an incredible experience. So you should all definitely get tickets. The promo code HFSP for have fun staying poor will get you 10% off.
2: It's going to be fire. Thank you. So can you guys hear me now? Yes, we can can hear you. Okay. uh, Sorry about that. I think I botched the co-host invite. My bad. Twitter didn't like that very much. Cool. Look, thank you all for hosting this. This is a lot of fun. I think whether it's P or Odell or UCK, as I'm walking through the intro part, if you want to like pause and double click on something, let me know. But I'll try to just do a TLDR of the thesis of the essay and go from there. What's really interesting is that I, I based my essay in large part on a book called Super Imperialism written in 1972, one year after the U.S. went off the gold standard and defaulted on its debt. was written by a guy named Michael Hudson. He used to work on Wall Street, and then he went into academia. And he's definitely like a left-leaning academic, which is why I thought it was interesting because he was analyzing how the dollar became so prominent from like a left perspective. But I felt like it was one that anyone could learn from, regardless of your political inclination, because I thought he spoke a lot of truth in that book, which was an inconvenient truth. Like, it's not a book that's commonly known today, It's outside of the economic orthodoxy, but it's very powerful when you read it. And you're like, wow, they didn't teach this in school. So I felt like it was worth diving into and and looking at from a Bitcoin lens, which is obviously what I'm trying to do here through my essays at Bitcoin Magazine. In a nutshell, the thesis is, okay, the world at a geopolitical level used to transact between countries on a gold standard, basically. And what we can debate about domestically, what each country, what kind of standard it was on, and how honest countries were. But basically, at the end of the day, until about 100 years ago, when countries would settle commerce with each other, they would settle the balance of payments with gold. That was the ultimate monetary good and financial asset. Today, it's the U.S. Treasury. So it's like American debt. Is the thing that is traded at the top of the monetary pyramid, let's say. if You have a monetary hierarchy. You have the ultimate money. How did the ultimate money go from gold, which is scarce and neutral and provably works, like had worked for thousands of years? How did we go from that to literally the debt of one country with 4% of the world's population? That was like the quest for this essay. You try to unpack that. And it's like a sequel to the Petrodollar article because the Petrodollar article focuses in, in detail on, like, kind of one aspect of this that was, as we'll get to, a very important aspect, but it's kind of one chapter in a longer story. Just to give some brief detail World War I, Germany, the UK, warring parties left the gold standard to fight the war. That war certainly could not have been fought to the extent it was if the countries had not left the gold standard. They waged unbelievable carnage and destroyed each other. The United States was able to, like, until the end, sit on the sidelines and sell weapons and goods and food and all kinds of stuff to these countries and build this industrial capacity. And it was also able to make loans throughout and afterwards. So basically, the U.S., coming from this trajectory of a revolutionary nation that had broken off of a larger empire, actually, post-World War I, became the world's most powerful economic country and eventually the world's largest creditor nation. Our balance of payments was positive. We were making more than we consumed. And that put us in a very advantageous position with regard to gold. And even though the European nations had gone off the gold standard in World War I, they tried to go back to it after. So in 1922, they gathered in Genoa, Italy, and they decided to go to something called the gold exchange standard, which is important because it's not the gold standard. What it meant is that all these nations in Europe, as they sought to rebuild from the rubble, they would use fiat currencies as savings Inside central banks, but those would be exchangeable to gold, redeemable to gold at a certain rate. And that would predict the Bretton Woods system, which we'll get to later. But You had Europe basically already definancializing gold. Like gold was being centralized and consolidated and moved to London and New York. So you already had a major evolution here in terms of what were countries saving in and, and settling in. It was not so much the precious metal anymore, it was really promises to pay at a certain rate. Now, through the 20s and 30s, some other interesting things happened. Of course, the United States did something that no other country ever did, more or less in history, which is that we asked the allies who we fought the war with to pay us back, which was not done. That was just like historically considered a cost of war. So Britain, France, like they had to pay us back, which is not something they were maybe expecting. So that put enormous constraint on their countries. And what this ended up doing is just putting massive constraint on Germany because everybody had to pay back Germany because Germany was the belligerent, according to the world, and had to pay everybody back. So Germany's trying to dig out of the destruction of the war, and it has to pay back these reparations. It enters its hyperinflationary phase, which a lot of you are familiar with. Its money dies. Its productive capacity struggles. It can barely pay anything back. And in a lot of ways, like the United States... Didn't want to help the rest of the world. So we had a very protectionist policy. Like we kept our tariffs really high. So Germany couldn't even make the money to pay us back because it couldn't, they couldn't sell its goods in our market. Same thing with the European nations. So instead of trying to cooperate, we took a very adversarial position. And these countries ended up suffering and retreating into a nationalist, kind of what we call an autarkic position where they were quite isolationist. So this helped lead to this nation global, let's say, the depressionary period. Another interesting thing that the book points out is that actually we wanted Britain to pay us back. That was the one country who wanted to pay us back. So we purposely lowered interest rates so that Britain could try and pay us back. But what that ended up doing is creating a massive boom in equities in the United States. So this was one of the reasons we had this massive stock market bubble. After that popped, again, we are in this like kind of autarkic, nationalistic, isolationary phase in world history, and FDR decides to take the next step and demonetize gold from the United States. So we're familiar with 6102, various accompanying legislation in action it was made a felony to hold gold, and well, gold was removed from the domestic monetary system, basically.
0: Hey, Alex, yeah, not to ahead. interrupt, but yeah. I, I just wanted to coin in so many aspects of, I guess, 1910s, 1920s really rhyme with what's happening today, a hundred years later, in terms of isolationist, globalization, breaking down, debt, a lot of these kind of like aspects, uh, maybe very low interest rates, stock markets booming. Did you see the connections when you were writing this? I think the meta view is that
2: the world's previous system was under stress and was breaking. And yeah, I think that's a good parallel to today, which we'll certainly get to. But in any event, what you're pointing out all of these trends, all these factors pointed to one big trend, which was that the United States had just so much gold. Not only were we like earning it through our industry and through the European nations paying us back through the debts they had, but there was what was called refugee gold in the 30s. So all of these like companies and wealthy people in Europe, they started to realize there was going to be war again. And in Germany stopped paying its reparations back to the allies. People felt unsafe and a lot of the gold came to the United States. So there was this like huge wave of gold coming and by the end of World War II, 70% of all the like non-Soviet gold at the government level was held by just the United States. So we were in this like massively prohibitive advantage against anyone else. And at the end of World War II, as we all know, forty-four, the allies got together at Bretton Woods, including the USSR. And we tried to figure out what the new monetary system was going to be. The British, led by Keynes, they wanted to make what was called the Bancor, which was going to be like an internationally managed currency. The United States said no. We want you all to use dollars. And so what I would describe as like the greatest rug pull ever began to be put together. So what we ended up doing is just convincing everybody to use dollars because we said we would promise to pay that each dollar back at a rate of $35 per ounce of gold. That was the outcome of the Bretton Woods system. The World Bank and the IMF were largely put in place to reinforce this system. Okay, the 40s, the 50s, the world was using dollars increasingly instead of gold. So dollars became like the monetary standard, but it was seen as okay. because you could just cash in the dollars for gold. This was like a extension of the gold exchange system. And it, it worked for a little while because the US was in a again, a creditor position. Its economy was dominant, but that started to change. So what's interesting is that Korea, the Korean War was the kind of the time and the era where we lost our creditor position. So we started having like a balance of payments deficit due to that war. And due to Cold War policy generally. Like we were in this like existential struggle, Washington policymakers thought to defeat the Soviets. So we decided to spend. And in the late 50s, the system came under tremendous stress. Eisenhower, one of the last things he did before he left office was to ban Americans abroad from owning gold, which was like a loophole. So we really wanted to get rid of gold. We did not like gold. Uh, We did not want people using gold. We had banned it domestically. We banned it abroad. We had tried to consolidate gold from other countries. We were really trying to kill gold as part of the monetary system because we didn't like how it restrained us. This was very much the trend that Hudson describes in his book. Especially, JFK gets elected. There's a lot of inflationary expectations. JFK promised to do more inflationary monetary policy. Then we have Vietnam, and the stress gets too much. The fix that the Allies tried to do to put a bandaid on the fact that the $35 per ounce was something that the United States government was increasingly seen as not. Like able to do was something called the London Gold Pool, which was created in sixty one which is basically like a like a price fixing mechanism so all, all these countries like in Europe and, and the United States government that had all this gold, they would basically just like dump their reserves on the market when the price got too high, and they were dealing with inflows of gold from two enemy countries, let's say South Africa and the Soviet Union, who were the two world 's largest producers of gold, and they would be like selling the gold into the market, which would help bring the price down. Whenever the price got too high, they would dump. So they were basically just trying to fix and manipulate the price of gold throughout the '60s. America kept spending, spending in Vietnam, and eventually, what happened is the pool collapsed. France left in '67, and in '68, they basically gave up and said, "Okay, there's going to be a market price for gold," which went later to like a hundred to two hundred dollars per ounce. And then there's going to be like the government price. So the Bretton Woods system was like dying, basically, and everybody saw that it was dying. The thing is. And this is what kind of Hudson describes in the book, this mechanism that he describes as super imperialism is the kind of like gradual realization of the United States that it could control all the other countries in the world through money, as opposed to through war. And it was something that was done because of one particular mechanism. And that's this sort of catch-22 situation that the Allies found themselves in, where let's say you're Japan or Germany, it's the late 1960s, and you have all these dollars that you've been forced to use, but... You don't want them anymore. If you reject the dollar or if you sell your treasuries, you sell your US debt, you're going to cause a crash in the dollar price. Now, what's going to happen is that the dollar then is going to get devalued, right? And then America is going to have more competitive exports. So your industries at home, if you're Japan or Germany, are going to suffer. So they're really stuck. They can't reject the system because it'll hurt them. So they're forced to keep eating this debt. And this is the mechanism that America used to basically consolidate. Its, its control to the point where August 15, 1971, when Nixon said, we're not going to redeem all those dollars out there, $50 billion of short-term dollar liabilities, we're not going to redeem them anymore because we can't. The world didn't dump all their dollars for other things. They couldn't really because of this like really genius kind of mechanism that had been gradually put into place. And it was through the promise that these dollars would be redeemable for gold. That was how they convinced the world to do it. And then Nixon betrayed the promise in 71. All of a sudden, you had all this dollar debt around the world. And that dollar debt was getting a lot more, was losing a lot of value really quickly after 71. Not only were people trying to gradually move into other things, they couldn't move too quickly. Otherwise, again, you'd hurt your own economies. But there was like basically a need for American policymakers to find someone else to buy the debt and to start propping up the dollar because it lost a lot of value. Basically, the dollar lost 50% of value versus the German mark between 70 and 74. Like we're talking a massive inflationary event. There was more inflation in the early 70s in the United States from a monetary perspective than since the Civil War, meaning it was the most inflationary event in American history since the Civil War. So American policymakers are like, oh, my God, who's going to buy all our debt? Who's going to prop up the dollar? They found their solution in the petrodollar system. So that's where that comes in. The Saudis and the OPEC nations, as a result of quadrupling the oil price, had just this enormous amount of money. And America basically negotiated in 73, 74, the system that I described in my previous essay, where the Saudis would agree to only sell oil for dollars. So everybody had to get dollars around the world to buy oil. And then with those petrodollar earnings, they would reinvest those dollars back into U.S. debt. Treasuries, they would keep the money either in euro dollar banks in Europe or in the United States. Now, this was a brilliant plan by U.S. policymakers, really kept the dollar afloat, kept demand for U.S. debt going. And through this whole system, which lasted, the Arabs eventually ran out of money in the 80s when the oil price crashed, but the U.S. was able to convince Japan to take over buying the debt, and then eventually China. And up till about 10 years ago, the system worked pretty well. Like we got everybody else to pay for our stuff. And that's the interesting thing about this whole system is that never before had there been an empire or whatever you want to call it, like a global dominant power, a hegemon, that forced other people to pay for its stuff. Like classic imperialist powers did not do that. They went and exploited and they stole, but they did it to build their own power financially. This was like a way that America used a new kind of imperialism, this author argues, the central bank imperialism, to force other countries to pay for our stuff. So basically the Vietnam War, later the forever wars that we've seen, this has all been paid for by, in large part, other countries buying our debt. And that's a thesis. And then where do we go from here? Since twenty thirteen, the other countries have been like net negative on US debt. They're like they've stopped buying it. They're doing other things. And this system is is running out of time. And the United States Federal Reserve is now the biggest buyer of our debt. So this is one of the reasons you're seeing all these inflationary pressures right now. So this system that Hudson described in 72, 50 years later, is starting to break down. And Obviously, I think that Bitcoin is a serious contender to replace American debt. And we had this system where the world went from asset money at the base, let's say, to debt or liabilities, basically. I think we're going to go back to asset money at the base. And I think that's going to be very powerful. And I think it's going to cause a new global renaissance. I'm pretty excited about that. So anyway, that's the whole thing. Let's get into the questions or or comments from our esteemed uh, friends up here.
3: I'd like to jump in real quick here. First of all, Gladstein, thank you for this piece. It was an absolutely epic piece. I thought I knew a lot about this topic, but apparently I didn't. So I guess most people understand that with Bretton Woods in 1944, 1945, the Bretton Woods system, it also created the IMF and the World Bank, which are basically like American-focused institutions. They're based here. At that time the US, I guess this is from my perspective as a hodler, Mm -hmm. the US had two thirds of the gold in the world, supposedly. Yeah. Yeah. Now we have 25%. Germany has 10%. And the IMF has 8%. Uh Those are the top three holders of gold in the world. Would you say our policy was a failure if we ended up with way less gold today than when we started the whole thing?
2: No. So I guess what I'm saying is that it was a success. Like, What ended up happening is that we did something that no other power had ever done before, and we actually spent down our gold. Like we had seven hundred million ounces of gold, as you point out, at the end of World War II, like more than two thirds of all the gold that governments held, we held, but we spent it down to less than three hundred million ounces by the '70s. So we like used our gold. So we had a much worse position, but it was successful because we had been able to convince the world to instead of use gold to use promises to pay for stuff, like basically, to use our debt. And the IMF is important because in 69, they came out with what they called paper gold or SDRs. And this was another way of like that Hudson says bailed out the U.S. because like this new entity created these units of currency that all the major powers were obliged to consider money. And they just printed them out of thin air and they gave a bunch of the United States. This whole system was very successful for American elites and for American power abroad, of course. It was not successful for a lot of other people. It was not successful over time for the average American whose savings obviously got destroyed and whose jobs in many cases were exported abroad as a result of this policy. It was not very successful for a lot of developing countries who, and I get into this quite a bit, who, yes, of course, in many cases, they have a higher, what they would call like a real income than today, rather today than before, but many of them actually don't. There are tons of developing world countries whose real income is like the same as it was 30, 40 years ago, or worse. So this system, which has benefited Washington elites, actually sucked value out of a lot of other countries and made them dependent on us. Like one of Hudson's other theses is that American food policy essentially is what has driven our foreign policy for 80 years. The reason we agreed to join it and then kind of took control of it was we were worried that other nations would start to become agriculturally independent. And we used the World Bank and IMF to make them dependent on buying food from us. So that's something he goes into quite detail, which I didn't know a huge amount about, which was shocking to me. And there was this whole thing in the 70s about Malthusian advocacy at the World Bank. Like the World Bank basically told poor countries, you have to stop having kids. You have to reduce your population growth to match your food output. It was really sinister. And in fact, India ended up forcibly sterilizing millions of people, really crazy history. But there was this belief in the seventies that was like not, it was not some conspiracy. It was like literally in all the public statements of the World Bank that like all these developing countries had to reduce their demand so that the system could keep going. And basically you can look at it as like America and Europe fed off of all these countries in a way. It's kind of screwed up, but it is what it is. Yeah, everybody grew. It's true, pretty much. But rich countries grew much faster than poor countries. There was a big differential difference here. So that's all part of the system, which is really screwed up. Yeah, I don't know. Go ahead, Matt.
3: Obviously, it's widely regarded as a success, From a US policy standpoint, and your article made that clear. I meant if we're watching this all unravel, which I feel like is most of our perspectives here, that it was a short lived success. If you say 50 years is a short time or 60 years is a short time, we're left with way less gold than we had to begin with.
2: Yeah, but the point is that our policy was to understand that gold was the most important monetary good. And our policy systematically was to attack it, both domestically, is what FDR did, and Eisenhower later. And then internationally. when Nixon put the nail in the coffin. And you're seeing like Russia and China buy more gold, right? Like they're starting to realize that maybe we're trending back in that direction. But yeah, look, it was a sacrifice. Basically, US policymakers in the late 60s and 70s looked and said, if we continue on this route, we're going to spend all our gold. We're not going to have any left. And they were like, that's not going to work for the war machine. We need to fight this war in Vietnam for whatever reasons. So we need to design a new system. So that's what led to everything I just described was that success in their eyes was creating a new system that didn't rely on gold. So for U.S. policymakers, the fact that we have like proportionally less gold than we did before, it doesn't really matter anymore. In fact, in 69, the last link between Federal Reserve notes and gold was like cut. Each Federal Reserve note used to have to be backed by 25% gold. That was cut even before Nixon gave his speech. So it's been a whole process of demonetizing gold. And- What I describe in my article is that's why I think Bitcoin's different. Bitcoin was literally designed. So I think Satoshi knew most of this or maybe all of it. They chose their birthday as April 5th, which is the day 6102 happened. And they chose their birth year as 73, which was the year that there was a law passed saying that citizens would be allowed to own gold again. So I think this whole idea of how they took gold away from us in order to force us to use paper money or promises to pay was very much in Satoshi's mind as they created Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is designed to not be vulnerable in the same way. Because what had happened with gold historically is that as good as it was as a store of value, it was pretty terrible as a medium of exchange. Like it was too valuable. Gresham's Law, like people wanted to save it. It ended up being put into banks and centralized. And over time, it was centralized into the most powerful country in the world. And we had all this gold and we were able to suck it up from everybody else. So that was like something that I think Satoshi saw very clearly. And they were like, I'm going to design a system that's different. So I think the two ways that a government can attack gold, right, were A, like confiscation and centralization, but also manipulating gold through paper markets, so through derivatives. So that's what's happened. So gold bugs will say that the real price of gold should be way higher than it is today, but that because governments control it all, they're able to manipulate the price. So if you think about Bitcoin, fact is, Governments don't control the Bitcoin. People control Bitcoin. Holders control it all around the world. There are like tons of whales that have more Bitcoin than Russia or the United States or China. Most of these countries don't even technically own any Bitcoin yet. So not only can they not confiscate it all, that's why the not your keys, not your coins is such an important thing for us to be pushing right now in the coming years. But they also can't really manipulate its spot price very much if they don't have it all, right? As I was describing with the London gold pool, really the best way of manipulating a spot price is by like controlling the flow of it and dumping it onto the market when the price gets too high. And then also through paper markets. Arthur Hayes wrote a good piece recently on the BitMEX blog about this. Very hard to do when you don't control the gold. So basically what we have in Bitcoin is something that may be able to avoid the fate of gold and give us like a money that governments can't just debase at will. Does that make sense, Matt? Yeah, I appreciate the insight. Thanks, Gladstein. Cool. Cool.
1: Yo, what is going on, plubs? We're going to take a break from our programming to tell you about the resurrection of our print magazine, starting with the El Salvador issue. Starting this fall, Bitcoin Magazine will be available on newsstands nationwide and at retail stores such as Barnes & Noble. Don't want to get off your couch, though? No problem. You can also go to store.bitcoinmagazine.com. So skip the line and get each issue shipped directly to your front door with our annual subscription. I'm talking four issues a year that contain exclusive interviews and profiles with leading Bitcoiners, actionable insights on the state of the market, breaking news and cultural trends, along with powerful photos and artwork from the best artists in the world. Subscribe today and get 21% off using code podcast at checkout. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, podcast at checkout.
4: The world of crypto can seem like the Wild West sometimes. Soaring highs, crashing lows, celebrity shills, and new coins popping up seemingly out of nowhere every day. Look, we get it because we've been there before. At Bitcoin Magazine, we aim to filter out the noise and help newcomers concentrate on the signal. That's why we focus on Bitcoin only. Learning about Bitcoin may seem intimidating at first, but we've worked hard to break things down in a simple and digestible format that anyone can understand. Bitcoin Magazine has launched a free 21-day email course that teaches you about the fundamentals of Bitcoin. You'll receive one new lesson each day that covers a brand new topic as we guide you down the Bitcoin rabbit hole with quick and easy three to five minute reads. Not only do you get the free course, but everyone who completes the quiz at the end will earn some free Bitcoin. Start learning and earning Bitcoin today. Visit b.tc forward slash 21 days to enroll.
0: We got a lot of people on stage. Sinclair, you requested. Do you have a question or something in mind for Alex?
5: Yeah. First of all, thank you. And thank you for the like the context. Uh, I come into Bitcoin from an engineering background and so much of this rabbit hole has given me a better understanding of sound money and the importance of sovereignty and what consensus means. And I think in some of these conversations, we somehow we miss one of the biggest influence economically over the last few hundred years, and that's been colonialism and enslavement of human beings. And when we talk about the significance of gold, I didn't realize until I got into Bitcoin that these things were all fictions. Like literally gold is a rock. When there's a pandemic and everybody's dying, the person with the most goats will probably beat the person with the most gold because you can't eat gold. So in a real way, I think there's a context when we talk about even if we have so much Bitcoin, Muammar Gaddafi had lots of gold, but he was murdered. So I think some of the things that we talk about, the skills or the economic policies, that there's really a brutal military consequence that really is the specter behind the U.S. dollar that we don't talk about. And that even when You know, I've done projects in Zimbabwe trying to, uh, again, help them deal with their hyperinflations under uh, U.S. draconian sanctions. And literally their policies weren't being dictated locally. Their policies were being dictated by the U.K. and by the United States. And the only reason they went with it wasn't because it was such great policy. If you don't lay down, you see all these coups taking place in Africa right now under Biden's administration. These countries are afraid of resisting the U.S. hegemony. Haiti, literally the head of state of Haiti was assassinated 80 miles from the United States. For us not to think that in this surveillance society that that wasn't a signal to someone and that the United States was very aware of it. These things undermine policy. So I just think we need to be also aware. and, And I only say that contextually as a U.S. citizen is that what happened in Afghanistan may not have anything to do with gold reserves or even who has bitcoins, but we as Americans can have an influence on that destruction if we start connecting dots, as well as work in a society with sound money without intermediaries who are writ seekers. So I think there's a two piece of this that I don't see enough in our political sophistication.
2: Thank you for that. Do you have a pointed question or do you just want me to generally respond to what you said?
5: You can generally respond to it. Okay,
2: thanks. Yeah, look, colonialism is largely the legacy of people with more capital and power taking gold from other people. I mean, you had the European powers taking gold and precious resources from Africa, from India for generations, again, because it was able to be centralized and custodied fairly easily. We're looking at a new century ahead of us where things are different. It's interesting to look at Nigeria now where trillions of dollars in today's terms of like labor and resources were stolen by the British. And now there's like all these young Nigerian innovators who are into Bitcoin. Maybe the tables turn here because the British aristocracy are pretty arrogant and they're very like anti-Bitcoin. You just read the Financial Times. It's like they're, you can read their heartbeat by reading it. These people fucking hate Bitcoin. Maybe they'll get wrecked. We'll see. That would be somewhat satisfying from a certain perspective. But we'll see. I think that all this sort of like big global exploitation stuff just gets a little harder when individuals control the money and they can resist confiscation through good operational security, through multi-sig, through stuff like that. I'm very excited to see where we go here. Okay. I guess we'll take the next question.
0: Yeah. Hey, really quick. After you ask the question, I may be taking you off stage just to make room for new folks to jump in, but let's go with VK.
6: Hey, Alex. Thanks for giving the whole history and context. I think the key thing that I got out of this is that we basically forced our hegemony on everyone else by forcing them to take on our debts, which is crazy. For you, like you said, right, China, Russia, and like I'm from India, or I grew up in India, basically, and moved here. But for us, like in India, gold is like actually a currency. It's a store of value. You pass it down through generation by generation. I wonder if you could display like some of the differences that are happening in the East versus the West as to Bitcoin adoption here, versus maybe gold there? And are there maybe two standards? Is there one
2: standard? How do you see it kind of playing out? What's interesting is that we talk about, we say the U.S. had 70% of the world's gold after World War II. What we're talking about is governmental gold, right? It's impossible to say how much gold people have. And I've seen estimates that say that Indian people actually have more gold than the United States government, which is interesting. And I think there's a very strong culture of that. Again, however... Gold has all these vulnerabilities. So I do think what you'll see is, at least in India, and this is one reason I think it's interesting that Jack Dorsey is focusing his like uh, Trust charity on India and, and also Africa, but is that you got 1.3, 1.4 billion people in both places. In the Indian case, a huge historical respect for the role of gold in society. And is that helps me believe that I think that, I don't think, I'm just looking at data, in- Indians are gonna adopt Bitcoin like crazy in the next decade because they're going to realize it's digital gold and they already are. It's unclear, but there's some data coming out of just exchanges in India, where it certainly seems like there's tens of millions of people in India who are in the Bitcoin space, or at least the wider cryptocurrency space. It's pretty crazy. Now, the question question, is like, will they actually own their own Bitcoin? Now, that's an educational piece. Or is it just sitting on some exchange? Because it's important for Indians to know, like everybody else, that If you just buy your Bitcoin on Wazir X or whatever and you leave it there, it's not helping anybody, right?
6: Yeah. Yeah. And I think I agree with you in the sense that Indians, I think they will adopt to the owning of their own self-custody, if we're talking about that, just because they don't have the education yet. But once they do, it's, it's almost like gold. Like when I used to go back to India all the time, my grandmother literally had gold in her own vault, her own safe. And it was... Almost like that was worth more than owning our own house at one point. And and so for them, like that self-custody portion becomes so much more important than owning your own land because technically maybe they own only 50% of their land or 25% and the bank owns like the other half. So you never know. But something like Bitcoin, I agree. I think if self-custody becomes really educated down there, they'll see it akin to
0: like gold basically. Thanks for answering the question. Sure. All right. Let's go with Mark and then we'll go Matt and Mitch.
7: Hey, Alex. Yeah, firstly, just big fan. Thanks for all the learning over the years. So much good material. You talked a lot about how the history of gold and governments. Do you think that governments can rehypothecate or weaponize paper against Bitcoin? Obviously, I know the, the sort of auditable differences of Bitcoin versus gold. But what are ways that they can monetize and embrace Bitcoin akin to how they use gold before this rug pull, as you said? And do you think in its final form Bitcoin will retain that asset commodity status or will mature to a purely currency medium of exchange? And I'm gonna give you a few here. And in that, do you think the US will ever create an SDR or a bond that are based on Bitcoin holdings? Will we ever see a and ultimately will there ever be a practical like removal of Bitcoin US dollar pairs?
2: Yeah. So thanks for the question, Mark. Um, It's my theory. theories change as we see new evidence. But as of today, globally, at some point, our current path is completely unsustainable, as most people, regardless of your ideology, should understand. There's going to be some devastating thing that happens in the coming decade. I'm more convinced of that. And I think out of that rubble, it is very possible that governments have to go back to this idea of like a asset exchange for their currency. So there may be this, who knows, but it could be a Bitcoin exchange system Where dollars and euros and yuan or whatever are exchangeable for a certain amount of gold. And I think that's a transitionary phase at that sort of, that'll be like the swan song of fiat currency, is my kind of theory. I think that what happens though, rather quick, merchants wanted paper because it was more convenient than actually having the gold. That's so different with Bitcoin. You can start to see how all these incentives are so different. Like merchants are just gonna want your Bitcoin. If they could take it with a swipe or a QR, they don't have to worry about custodying the gold or like, oh my God, is somebody going to steal these like gold coins that are in the back of my store? And that's one of the reasons why we went to paper gold promises, as opposed to actually the gold itself was just convenience, security, et cetera, et cetera, scaling. The thing here is that eventually, to me, it makes sense that Bitcoin actually just becomes the currency that we use day to day, because I think merchants are going to want it. I think that's eventually what's going to drive that. So I think long term, I find it hard to believe that Bitcoin long term just isn't going to be the like dominant daily currency that people use. But I do think that there's going to be this phase in between where maybe we have this almost a Bretton Woods type standard where the governments have their fiat, but it's like exchangeable for Bitcoin at a certain rate. And there'll be all kinds of shenanigans and power struggles and God knows what. But I think that eventually
0: just gives way to people just using. Yeah, at least about that part. All right, let's keep it rolling. Matt, why don't you jump in?
8: Hey, thanks, Bitcoin Magazine. Thanks, Alex, for Taking the time for all of us. Absolutely loved the article. I tore through it (laughs) probably a little too quickly. And I'd love for you to discuss the portion on, I loved how you compared technology deflation as probably being a bigger reason second and third world nations were able to pull themselves up out of poverty and improve the living conditions of their people far more than central world banks providing loans and US dollars. On that note, do you think that can explain why Bitcoin adoption per capita is absolutely exploding and outpacing the US in some of these nations? I'm looking at the latest chart that lists, looks like seven, eight other nations, including Asia and South America that have a higher per capita adoption than the US, despite most of the mining now being in the US. Your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I posed the question to the reader of technology deflation as something that should be considered when we're looking at the rising living standards of people in poorer countries. The important takeaway of that section, of course, I think is that even those people grew more slowly, like their rate of growth was way worse than rich countries. So if you're going to go make a case for the World Bank and the IMF and the dollar system as rescuing people from poverty, I think you need to explain why then it increased the inequalities globally. Like that's what I'd like that person to explain. As far as why you're seeing rates of adoption higher elsewhere, I think that's just simply because it's more obvious to people that their money is broken. Like even today, 6 7% inflation, whatever we have here that they tell us, people are starting to get a little worried. But this is just like how people have always lived in a lot of places. I mean, we're talking places that have, again, there's 1.6 billion people who live under like CPI, double digit, triple digit inflation, forget asset inflation. So they're just used to it and I think it just makes a lot more sense for them. Like the higher the faster your currency that you earn in and that denominates things around you is collapsing, the more appealing Bitcoin's going to be. I think that's to me that's just pretty straightforward. Thank you for your question.
8: Following up on that, we're pretty familiar with the Cantillon effect. Do you think there's a Cantillon effect of technology where let's face it, the biggest breakthroughs get enjoyed by the first world nations far before the rest of the world sees them in their lives and we've had some loud voices saying that it's not bitcoin but ai that will be our savior and trust in an ai future but do you see that as just missing the force for the trees or is that just a different conversation or
2: no th- there's no contillion effect with technology but it's true that meaning it's not like a cell phone's less valuable for someone in nigeria than it is for the person who got it first like that that's no not of how course it works. but just that no, I got it. I get yeah, it. I got somebody, it. So, okay, so, so, so basically, it is true, though, that generally speaking, technology waves have hit more advanced countries first, and have benefited them first. That's not happening with Bitcoin. If I go out and I survey 30 people in downtown San Francisco, most of them are going to be like, what the fuck are you talking about, Bitcoin? And yet, there are tens of millions of people across the emerging markets using it. So it's not the same. And this is what people point to me as you can, like, quite obviously, a lot of you are down in El Salvador right now. That's the first country, and that's a whole different conversation, but that's the some poor Central American countries the first one to adopt Bitcoin as a legal tender, not like Germany, let's put it that way. So I think that's a really good summary of what's happening
0: here. Like the innovation is happening elsewhere. Thank you, though. So actually, yeah, uh, I think this is a perfect opportunity to jump over to Mitch, who has been talking and thinking about leapfrogging for a long time. And I think that has to do with, you know, what Alex just talked about. Mitch, do you have any comments on this leapfrogging effect with technology, as well as a question for Alex regarding the article?
9: Yeah. So just, yeah, the comment on the leapfrogging and democratization of technology and the Cantillon effect. I think it's really interesting that these countries just lost, they continue to lose and lose value, yet they gain new technology that is supposed to give them more value for less time. And I guess my question I had for Alex is Satoshi gave clues to 6102 gold. What vulnerabilities do you see that Bitcoin has for a possible 6102? And then how can we possibly avoid that?
2: Yeah, obviously the big one is if people don't actually be their own bank, which is why, again, I think it's powerful that being your own bank and proof of keys and get your money off the exchanges has been a meme throughout Bitcoin's history. Bitcoin is powered by memes in many ways. And I think that those memes are very important and we need to keep those memes going. That is the failure point, right? I don't really see it as possible to fail, so to speak, but if not enough people own the Bitcoin, we're going to have a worse world. Let's put it that way. Like we, we need to have a culture of, of self-custody. Otherwise it just becomes harder to change the system. Look at it this way. If there's 40 or 50 million Americans quote unquote using Bitcoin, but only 5 million of them are custodying, And the other 45 just have their money on coinbase or whatever and the u.s government is like in some desperate thing and just decides to just seize all that money or go to coinbase and take it or try to tax it or god knows what you're not getting that benefit so the overwhelmingly most important thing is to push self-custody i think that's the main vulnerability and fear and and that's what we should all work on so i got a quick run up to that question
9: as well if you have time. Do you see Bitcoin, some certain protocol advantages that would incentivize holding your own keys or incentivize not having, yeah, I guess not having banks or quasi banks holding them?
2: What do you mean? Proto- do you mean like changes in Bitcoin itself?
9: Yeah. Or anything that's already working under the hood of Bitcoin that kind of incentivizes that.
2: Yeah. I think it's all about wallet. It's all about the user interface. How does the user connect to Bitcoin? So it's on the wallet makers. and. It's on non-custodial free and open source wallet makers to make their products elegant and beautiful and things that people want to use. That's why I'm a fan of what the Moon wallet is doing because that's what they do. Like the wallet is elegant and as good as other apps that are not free and they're part of the legacy system, or better, arguably. That's where we need to be. We need to be better and then people will use it. So I think that has nothing to do with the product. The Bitcoin protocol is just fine. It's the actual wallet makers. So That's where when the Human Rights Foundation is looking at its Bitcoin development fund, for example, we're going to have a lot of focus on helping wallet makers in the coming years, for sure.
0: Thank you, though. Hey, real quick, I would love, Matt, I just sent you an invitation to come back on, but I think you think about 6102 a lot. So feel free to jump in. And also, Tone Vase is still in the chat. Feel free to request again, too. I think I accidentally uh, rejected you on accident. Who wants to jump up next? We have a couple of new people on stage. Masuda, I see you. You were requesting. Do you want to jump in?
10: Yes. Thank you so much. This is such an interesting discussion. Look, I work on Afghanistan and there is a crisis right now as a humanitarian and economic collapse I'm not an economist. I'm just trying to help. We've created an organization to unfreeze Afghanistan's aid and help find a way to unfreeze the nine and a half billion dollars of assets, two to three billion of which are individual people's money. Afghan civilian population is really suffering. My question to you is the problem in Afghanistan is there is a lack of cash notes in both local currency, any, and a lack of U.S. dollars. So, mm-hmm. As we think about Bitcoin and as you think about policy, what would you suggest Afghanistan should do? Is there a solution somewhere in Bitcoin for this problem?
2: Yeah, it's tricky. I think that number one, Bitcoin has been a solution for Afghans for a while,
10: very small scale, right? I'm talking about whether right. But there's no
2: the only reason it wouldn't be more is that there just wasn't more education about it. Like my friend Roya was like paying the women who worked for her in 2013 and 14 in Bitcoin on self-custodial phone apps. Like it it worked. It's just a matter of very few other people outside of her community joined. And then back then it was like the currency was so volatile. And today people are still skeptical about Bitcoin. Back then it was like reasonable to be skeptical about Bitcoin. It was in a different world. You had the currency going from twelve hundred bucks to two hundred bucks. It was much harder to defend. Today it's a little easier to defend. I think it should be baked into education. I don't Think it's like a something you can but grasp I'll ask you it a technical
10: on. question though. Just sure. so the way that we've been looking at it is yes, they can receive Bitcoin on the other end, etc., and it's being used like you said by some of these female entrepreneurs. Right. Um, but they need to cash out on that side because it's a cash-based economy. So are you saying that maybe there needs to be wider adopt? Clearly, if there's wider adoption, it helps. But how do you deal with it in a cash-based economy?
2: Well, what Roya was telling me is that the traditional people who run the Hawala system in Kabul, in Herat. Are starting to accept Bitcoin. This yes, is really- but the
10: Hawala dealers are running out of cash too, and they have to cash out at some point.
2: So I think what eventually is gonna happen is that the people who sell goods and services are going to accept Bitcoin. And it starts to become a circular economy. I think that's where it's eventually heading. But for now, no, there's no easy fix. It's a disaster. And anyone who says there's an easy fix is just lying. I think it's a gradual thing or you have a long term time preference and we bake in Bitcoin financial literacy into education so that people who are 12, 13, 14, 15 years old today, they have the power to understand this thing and they use it. There is no like magical fix here, but it is encouraging that the Hawala system is starting to integrate Bitcoin. I think that's helpful because as you say, foreign powers have decided that the government of Afghanistan now is like not allowed to have its its money basically. And all that stuff's getting super scarce. I get it, which sucks as much as I think that government is evil or whatever. It doesn't help To do these countrywide sanctions or freeze an entire country's money, that's a terribly cruel thing to do, in my opinion. It causes massive human suffering. And look, this is one of the byproducts of the whole system I just described, is that one country can just decide to turn another country's money off. I think that's insane. So hopefully we move to a new world where that's not the case. But for now, again, technically, we're going to be supporting some educational efforts at a small scale and seeing what we can do. But I think that's where we need to be. You can't force technical solutions on somebody if they don't understand Bitcoin. Like we're seeing that now in El Salvador, it's like very hard. So I think you have to start with education. That's where we all started. Like I was clueless about it at one point too. In order to use it and to believe in it and to share it, you have to learn about it. There's gonna be a lot of discussion about Afghanistan, but I think education is the one thing we should try to at least focus on. But thank you for your question. It's a tough one.
10: Thank you.
1: Those are stackable. So go to b.tc forward slash conference and attend the best conference in Bitcoin history. Yo, my fellow Bitcoin lovers, have I got something specifically curated for you. The Deep Dive is Bitcoin Magazine's premium markets intelligence newsletter. This isn't some paid group shilling buy and sell signals. No, this is a premium Bitcoin analysis led by Dylan LeClaire and his team of analysts. They break down in an easily digestible way what is happening on-chain, in the derivatives markets and in the greater macro backdrop context for Bitcoin. This newsletter turns volatility into a joke. So hit up members.bitcoin.magazine.com and use promo code podcast for 30% off the deep dive. That's members.bitcoinmagazine.com, promo code podcast for 30% off. Divorce your pay group and learn why Bitcoin is the strongest asset by Dylan and LeClaire and
0: his team. Hey, real quick. So, just a reminder, don't be offended if I take you off stage. We can only have so many people on stage and lots of people requesting. So, nothing personal after you ask a question and maybe taking you off stage. Matt, we were talking about 6102. Alex gave some insightful answers on it, but I'm curious what your take is on 6102 since it's something that you've been thinking about a lot.
3: I tend to agree with everything Alex was saying. I would just add that we should all assume that it will happen in at least a few countries as bitcoin monetizes and becomes what we expect to be the world reserve currency and people need to start taking precautions on their own and practice personal responsibility learn how to hold their own keys use their own node privacy best practices because if the attacks start it's going to be too late at that point you have to do that before that time and uh, a great guide in terms of a lot of those things i just discussed is Privacy dot guide. So check
0: that
6: out. Cheers.
0: Thanks a lot. All right, let's Thanks, go to Dinah. You want to? You have a question?
6: Oh uh, sure. I have Cuban background, and I just wanted to actually. I talk to Cubans all the time about Bitcoin. Also, They right? Uh, you know, quite a couple of people in Cuba who use it for sure. And uh, yeah, I just want to know what do you guys think Bitcoin will do to actually free the people of Cuba.
2: That's a great question. So I wrote this summer, I spent a lot of time talking to Cubans who use Bitcoin. I wrote an essay for Bitcoin magazine called Inside Cuba's Bitcoin Revolution. I would encourage you to check that out. There's also there's a Spanish language version of it as well. I think the short answer is Bitcoin's already giving freedom to people in Cuba. It's already helping people achieve financial freedom. I would encourage people to consider the cruelty of the double problem that the Cubans face where their currency has been Devalued in a massive way that they, they've lost two thirds of their purchasing power in the last year. And they're now forced to live in this system where they, by and large, earn pesos, which the government is printing and printing, which will print into nothing eventually. And where the goods they need to buy in stores can only be purchased through, with something called an MLC, which is almost like a gift card that needs to be topped up with hard currency. So the government is playing this game, this cruel game, where It won't allow you to buy things in the good stores with the money that you make in public sector jobs or with pensions. So the pensioners and the public sector workers, which account for most Cubans, they actually have to take their earnings and go into the black market at some insane rate and exchange the money and exchange the money that they've earned through their time and labor for MLCs at this huge rate. So it gives the government massive seniorage. And at the same time, the government is getting the friends and family of all of these people to top up these gift cards with like pounds or Brazilian money or Canadian dollars or whatever. It's allowing the government to increase its like foreign exchange reserves. And I think that system is, is totally screwed up. At the same time, you have the United States, which has got this like horrible embargo, which prevents Americans from interacting with their Cuban families and things like that. So they're really isolated and stuck between a rock and a hard place. And that's why Bitcoin is so important is because it allows them to take their time and effort put it into a currency that the Communist Party doesn't control, and also connect with their friend, family and friends abroad. So you could argue that Bitcoin is doing more for freedom in Cuba than anybody else right now. Thank
0: you for your question. Awesome. Let's go to Heritage. What's up, Heritage?
11: Yes, good day everyone. I'm Erit Samuel. I'm a software developer and Bitcoin educator speaking from Nigeria. I've actually been listening to what Alex and I have been saying in regards to education, in regards to enabling adoption as far as the Bitcoin ecosystem is concerned. I must say I resonate with that idea and why I'm saying that is that I'm very excited when Alex was talking about the population in India and comparing how Jack Dusty have been willing to enable adoption in Africa. One major issue is that I tend to tell folks listening from the U.S. or other jurisdictions that when you come to Africa, you tend to understand that Bitcoin in Africa itself means freedom because people... Are experiencing a lot in real time because there are different use cases to it other than just building generational wealth. And I also want to put it out there that the population of the country is about 200 million. The present people adopting Bitcoin is are the youths, and the population of those people are about 32 million. So there is still a long way to go. What we should focus on is preaching adoption and. Presently, we have indigenous wallets, we have problem in regards to government cracks down, even coming on to the P2P system, make people trying to adopt Bitcoin. I know this like...
2: Heritage, we lost you. Yeah, maybe he'll come back, but just to weigh in.
11: Yeah, 100%. Oh. Hey, Heritage, not to interrupt you, actually-
0: but we lost you for about 20 seconds there. I'm curious if you can cut to a question just so Alex can react. Yeah, you keep cutting in and out. It may be your VPN.
11: Yes, yes. It's because of the VPN, Three is restricted. Let me ask my question Thank you. quickly. My question to Alex would be, in regards to like fleet currency, that is, dollar becoming the hyper power of currency, as you stated above, in regards to a jurisdiction whereby the assets, the affiliate currency is deflationary, that is, there is a lot of inflation, and people are trying to boycott inflation with Bitcoin. But there are downs and, and problems in regards to adoption. What do you advise in, in such scenarios?
2: Yeah, thank you. And it's true. Governments are doing their best to restrict people. Our friend here has to go and use a VPN just to get on Twitter. And the Nigerian government has tried to basically like shutter bank accounts of folks who they can like figure out are, are using uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. Much uh, respect to our Nigerian friends. But uh, yeah, look, I think it's interesting because the answer is the same for every country. I think it just starts with learning, education, sharing with the people you care about, teaching them about best practices. What is already starting to happen, of course, is not only like a circular economy, but a kind of parallel economy where people are earning money in other countries in cash in whatever country they're in, buying a gift card with the cash as a Nigerian worker, and then they're using the gift card to buy Bitcoin. They're either using the Bitcoin gift card to buy Bitcoin, or they're like taking a picture of the gift card and sending it back to their family in Lagos or wherever. And then the family member is selling the gift card over like Paxful or something for Bitcoin. So you're starting to see this like parallel economy emerge. And I think it's really interesting that you don't need to interact with the financial system anymore in terms of you can earn cash, buy gift cards, sell the gift card for Bitcoin, use Bit Refill to buy pretty much anything you need with the Bitcoin. You can buy phone minutes, you can buy gasoline, you can buy food with gift cards that you can purchase through Bitcoin without touching the dollar system in countries like Nigeria. So you think it's fascinating to track. And again, I think education is is what we should focus on. There's no magic solution. The Bitcoin revolution is not about a magic solution. It's not easy. It's hard, actually. It's really hard. But it's hard work that pays off and they can't be easily stolen from you. So I think it's worth committing to.
0: Thank you for your question. Awesome. We have Jeff, we have Aaron. You guys have a a question or a comment for Mr. Gladstein. I just wanted to jump in,
12: Alex, while you're on stage and just tell you that I just so appreciate what you're doing. I love your knowledge of Bitcoin and how you blend it with just a huge heart for people around the world. That's one of the things that I get most excited about. It was actually at the Bitcoin conference last year that got me so jacked about I came into this market as basically a speculator, and Bitcoin has awesome risk-adjusted returns. That's great for investors here in the U.S. and in developed nations. But thinking about
0: this, because even amongst Bitcoiners, I feel like you've been really trailblazing along like this freedom narrative, as well as just unveiling these stories. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate that.
2: Look, look, Bitcoin is the incentive for me because I learned about Bitcoin, and then I started questioning everything about money. But really, like the stories that I've been trying to follow are not about Bitcoin. They're about the broken financial system. And it's something that is incredible to watch the mainstream economic orthodoxy kind of ignore. You had this whole debate over like Jack's tweet, right, about hyperinflation. And it revealed that, first of all, people refuse to believe that could ever happen. And they also don't understand that a high... Extreme inflation, wild inflation, is a very common thing that's happened in history in the fiat world, right, over the last – really, like, any time a country has gone off of an asset standard, there has been hyperinflation, at least up until somewhat recently when the U.S. has been able to, like, somewhat stabilize things. But you go back in time, you look at, you know, ancient China, you look at issues, obviously, John Law, like, there's all kinds of, like, historical – Examples for like when people go into a paper standard, things get super hairy, and there's there's always economic crises. So I think that we've been just led to believe that the system we're in is fine, and that there's no other way. And that to me is crazy because what underlies it is just so many issues and problems and contradictions. So I'm trying to dig those up through my writing and trying to stay positive. I'll just give a, a shout out. I've had the privilege of reading Alan Farrington and Sasha Meyer's new book, Bitcoin is Venice, which is Amazing. It's an incredible work. And that's going to come out soon. I know you guys are working on that with them, which is great. I got asked to do the forward. So I've been working on that and just finishing the manuscript. And I feel like that book is really uh, kind of spiritually aligned with a lot of my writing because I think Bitcoin is Venice, the book shows what happens when society, they call it the dominant political economy since 71, and what happens to society under that dominant political economy and what happens to people and individuals in that political economy. And a lot of it is in line with Parker Lewis's writings as well. But just the fact that like all over the world, we've gone into debt and we've gone into this great financialization and it has created really perverse incentives in our society, which are hidden by like the just overall indefatigable progress and march of humans in a way, but things could just be so much better. Someone asked me the other day, they're like, wow, America's done so well even though they were pointing at that chart that Bitcoiners like to share that shows the dollar collapsed by 99% since 100 years ago. And they're like, they're making fun of it and saying something like, but look how good we have it. And it's, yeah, but do you know how much better it would be if we hadn't debased our currency and went off the gold standard to fight the Vietnam War? Do you know what I mean? So people assume that today is like right and proper and the only way it could have been, and they lose sight of what happened
0: in the past. So happy to dig into these things with you guys. Thank you. Thank you, CK. And you mentioned Alan's book. I I know you're working on something yourself. I don't want to tease it too soon. (laughs) Yeah, sure. No, I'm going to turn my writings for Bitcoin Magazine into a book that Bitcoin
2: Magazine's helping me publish. I guess it should be out by Q2 next year. It'll be most likely called Check Your Financial Privilege based on the essay with the same name. It'll be 12 chapters. And yeah, I'm excited for that because I feel like a lot of people... Like I'm really proud of all the writing I've done, and I I hope that each piece can contribute to starting discussions and dialogue. And I know that a lot of people have maybe read one or two of my pieces, but certainly not all of them. So I think that'll be really nice to have it in one place. And I hope that the book can be something that can be shared, much like I think Alan's book will be shared, hopefully among non-Bitcoiners, to just get the conversation going. So I'm hoping to make an impact with check your financial
0: privilege and really happy to be working with you guys on that. Really excited for that. Yeah. We're lucky to have you, man. That's for sure. Dr. Jeff, welcome back to the stage. You want to start your thought over and, and frame that towards Alex, and then Matt, will go to you next.
12: All right. Hey, thanks again, guys. Sorry, I think I broke the internet before I was getting all impassioned and, and everything just crashed. So, <laughs>
0: um, <laughs> Twitter can feel your energy, man. So it can, Step man. it down a little bit on this I'll, one so we don't crash. Again.
12: I'll try to take it down a notch. but So I don't even know where I got cut off, so I'll just start over to say, Alex, first of all, I just have mad respect for you for your intelligence of Bitcoin, but also just your huge heart for humanity and like all of the suffering that's going on around the world. And as you teach so many people all the time, so much of that suffering is caused by these governments and their crappy currencies and just crushing the purchasing power of their people and and all that stuff. And we don't have to get into any of that. But I just want to say, I just really respect what you do. And I'm really thankful for you. I have a lot of people who, when I try to talk to them about Bitcoin, They cannot get on board in terms of you can make a lot of money. It's a great speculative play, blah, blah, blah. But when we talk about how it's better money and it's truly social justice for oppressed people around the world, those are the kind of things that a lot of my relatives who did like Peace Corps and stuff, they jive with that. They can see that. They're like, this is like an actual practical way to really alleviate human suffering around the world. And I didn't have much more than that other than just I respect what you do. I'm really thankful for you. I hope to join you someday and and on your missions and and wherever you are around the world. I think actually Bitcoin missions is even more powerful than medical missions. And that's something coming from a a former doctor. So keep it up. I got your back and and Bitcoin is better money and it's changing the world. I'm really excited to be a part of
0: this movement as well. Thank you. All right. Not so much a question, but I fully uh, agree with everything you said, Dr. Jeff. Matt, why don't you jump in here?
8: Hey, thanks. Thanks again, Alex, for answering all of our questions. A fun one, a more hypothetical one here. We hear over and over that the U.S. will probably adopt last or onboard way after the fact, but I keep looking at adoption per capita, and the U.S. is already top 10. So, just mathematically, Eventually, Bitcoiners and Bitcoin maxis will make their way into all the halls of government and institutions in the U.S. And my question is, what do you think is different about some of the Western powers in Europe that they don't even crack the top 20 in terms of Bitcoin adoption per capita? We can charitably say Ukraine makes the list, but one would not think of them as some of the old world
2: European powers. Look, I think this data is hard to trust at this point. We've got very little data on Bitcoin adoption, and it is certainly, in my opinion, way more than what we think. We don't have a lot of indicators. Look, Bitcoin, in many ways, people don't want to tell you if they have Bitcoin. So I think it's going to be hard to grasp the actual extent. But I could assure you that there are, in fact, millions of Bitcoiners throughout continental Europe. Whether or not the charts and and surveys show it, I'm not sure. But there are massive communities in Germany and Spain and other countries I wouldn't be too worried about them. I I think the governments, yes, I agree that there's a very big difference. The EU seems to be taking a much more aggressive stance against Bitcoin than the U.S. government. And that's because of its centralization. It's not as federated in a way, whereas weirdly, even though like those are all sovereign nations, the EU's like kind of monetary policy is much more united around the idea of fighting Bitcoin. Whereas in America, even though we, we are one nation and we don't have different sovereign states, it's rather sovereign countries inside of our union, those states have a lot of power and those politicians and leaders of some of those states are starting to be very pro-Bitcoin. And that makes a huge stumbling block. Whereas in Europe, it doesn't look like there's going to be very many pro-Bitcoin voices, at least right now, among like important policymakers. That makes the path forward very clear and very obvious and easy. In America, OK, so if the Biden administration wants to pass something progressive on Bitcoin, Oh, there's going to be a debate on that. It's weird to say, given that Europe is technically more federated, let's say, because it's sovereign nations. But in a way, America's built very well for this. And yeah, I was just in D.C. a few weeks ago. Look at Cynthia Lummis. She's part of a bipartisan finance committee where people want Americans to own Bitcoin. There are progressive candidates across the country putting Bitcoin into their platform. There are conservative candidates, there are libertarian candidates, there are all kinds of candidates adding Bitcoin to their platform. So. I think America is well positioned to be a place where hopefully it doesn't become illegal to own. And my whole thesis the whole time has been that, that Bitcoin is very exceptionally American in its values and what it promotes in terms of free speech and property rights and open capital markets. And I think that it'll be a much stronger nation because of Bitcoin, which is something that people don't agree with. They feel like the dollar is what makes America. And I would argue the opposite. I would say the dollar is one of the kind of nastier parts of our history. And I think we can do better than that. So I'm excited about the future of Bitcoin in this country. I look forward to the day when I can go into a Walmart and buy an ASIC off the shelf and go mine at home and contribute to network security and buy a node at at Walmart as well. Things like that. I think that's a possible future here. I think we get very dark sometimes, but I don't know, man. I I think there's also
0: some room for optimism. All right, y'all. We got four more minutes. Alex, you've been with us for almost 90 minutes here. So really appreciate your very valuable time. Switch Labs, do you have a question for Alex? And then after that, maybe we can close it out with a last word from Alex.
9: I just wanted to know, There's a most of the talk when it comes to Maxis, um, Bitcoin maximalists is always how they talk about alts, but I don't really worry about that that much. The only part that worries me a little bit is the amount of toxicity that there is towards Bitcoin entrepreneurs. It's a little weird to me, but I just want to, know what you guys
0: think about that what do you mean off topic maybe we can just skip that yeah question. we'll just skip that. i don't know if there's any really toxicity towards entrepreneurs maybe people want to print tokens and yeah i think there's a lack of tolerance to that but yeah let's uh, go to last words alex
2: sure look thanks everybody for joining me i hope you read the article i'm going to continue exploring some of these ideas check out super imperialism as i try to point out i think that you're you're not going to agree with everything in it. It's quite provocative. It's 50 years old, but I mean it. At the time, I think it really was a snapshot of something really powerful that was happening. That again, if you read my article, you'll see that the author actually has made numerous predictions throughout the years that there's going to be some other currency that that, that comes to power that might challenge the dollar. And here we are, right? Satoshi Nakamoto. That's pretty interesting. There's also some stuff in there I intend to explore more. There's a book called "Capital Is Fast Power." Written by these two political scientists out of Israel that I'm very interested in. I cite some of their work on inflation and on differential power in the article. I'm going to be trying to dig into that for you guys in the future, for sure. And yeah, I'm also intrigued by what's happening with the Navajo Nation and how they're adopting Bitcoin mining. And I think that's a whole interesting story, too. So something I might be looking at in the near future. But yeah, hey, thanks so much, CK, for organizing this. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Matt. Odell and the rest of you. Thank you, Alex. Lots of
0: gratitude. Thanks, guys. Have a great day. All right, y'all. Well, hey, I highly recommend going to Alex's author page on Bitcoin Magazine, reading all of his articles. All of them should be read by Guy Swan as well. So if you prefer listening, go check out Bitcoin Audible. Go check out the reads on Bitcoin Magazine without comment or ads. And yeah, consume all of Alex's stuff and keep an eye out for what comes next, including a book. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Bye.